your six-month married self. Knowing what you know now, if you could go back and talk to yourself six months into marriage, what would you tell your six-month married self? In a lot of marriages, it takes about six months for the, the honeymoon to kind of be over. Some of you, it's a little longer. For some, it was a little less than that time. And that's when uh, the real work of getting along with a spouse kicks in. So if you could go back, what would you tell your six-month married self? I've been married for about 35 years, and I think if I could go back, I would say to my, my six-month married self, you're, you're, you're making uh, fusses out of a whole lot of stuff that doesn't need to be fussed about. Um, <clears throat> Whatever, whatever it is that's got you stirred up, uh, about, about 90% of it, you just don't need to have a fuss about. Just be quiet and uh, get used to it, and, uh, and it's going to be okay. I do hate conflict. Anyone who doesn't hate conflict has got a little bit of a problem. The book of Proverbs talks about that. That he who loves strife loves sin. So it's uh, it's a problem when somebody loves to have fusses. There are a number of ministries uh, that just seem to be built on having one fuss after another, just constantly into a fuss. And uh, thankfully, I have, for the most part, been able to stay outside of the fusses that are on the Internet, but it takes some, it takes some deliberation. Several years ago, um, I submitted a, uh, a piece for publication, and uh, the publisher uh, said, well, I, I, we're not interested in publishing the book, but there is this section that you have submitted that I would like to put it on a, uh, a website that is widely read, the Gospel Coalition website. So, uh, <clears throat> so I, I gave permission, and it was a it was a section that I had written, examining the question of when was Christian in Pilgrim's Progress? When did he become a Christian? Was it when he passed through the wicket gate, or was it when his burden fell off of him at the cross? And so. Uh, I maintained what I believe John Bunyan would have maintained, that it was when Christian entered through the wicked gate. Because the wicked gate is a narrow gate, and Christian go, and, and the narrow gate represents Jesus. And so when he entered into the narrow gate, that is when he entered into the kingdom of God. He still did not understand penal substitutionary atonement, and so he continued to be bothered about his sin, and that's why he had a burden on his back. And when he came to the cross, then he came to understand that Jesus died for his sins and he understood that the righteousness of Christ had been credited to him. And those two things together caused him to lose his burden. So that's the gist of uh, the article. I, I, don't, I don't know. I haven't seen it for years. I, it, I put it in the Mere Calvinism book, so if you have that, you can read the illustration. It's probably not more than a thousand words. And uh, the reaction 
on the world of the internet was uh, unexpected. Now, I don't, uh, I don't regularly, I have never read anyone's blog or website regularly, still don't, have good, I have good reasons for that, uh, but I certainly didn't at that time. And I started getting emails from students and former students who said, you need to read this criticism of you. You need to read, read this other criticism of you. And so naturally I was curious and I read what some people were saying about this article that I had published or that had been published on the Gospel Coalition website. And, uh, you know, they were, they were saying, you know, Oric is espousing an old heresy here. I can't even remember what the heresy was. It was probably something that I'd never heard of. <clears throat> and uh, Carol was distressed about it. And uh, she said, Jim, you've got to answer all of these critics. <clears throat> and I said, well, I, I, I don't think I do. <clears throat> I mean, for one thing, there's just a very tiny percentage of the people who are going to read these websites and Half of them who read it won't believe it. And uh, anybody who knows me will know that I'm not a heretic, whatever they're accusing me of, that, that I'm not that. And so I just left it completely alone. And uh, have any of you ever read any of those articles in response to that piece? On Well, no, I, you'd have to search far and wide to find someone who had. You know, it, it hasn't influenced your opinion of me whatsoever. You don't, you don't need to fuss about everything. The moon does not stop to scold every dog that barks at it. And so you, you just, someone asked me recently, you know, what, what, is a, what is a key to leadership? And I said, well, for one thing, you've got to be able to take a hit. If you're going to play football, if you're going to be a boxer, You've got to be able to take a hit and get up and keep going. And if you're going to be a leader, you also have to be able to take a hit and uh, not get into a fuss over every little thing. But if you stand for the truth, even though you would like to be a man of peace and you would like to be a woman of peace, conflict is sometimes going to come to your door. And you can't always run away from it. So there are, you know, I, I talk to my six-month-old married self and I say, you're getting upset about a lot of things that you just don't need to get upset about. But there are some things that have to be worked out and have to be worked through. And that's the way it is in life. Uh, I hope that you're a person who abhors conflict. and You just rather not have any fusses for the rest of your life. But it's not going to happen. There will conflict come. In fact, the Bible says, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And persecution is not always drastic physical persecution. Sometimes it's verbal. So, for example, when Jesus pronounces a blessing on those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, he explains it by these four words. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, and when they reject your name as evil. So he's explaining persecution. He doesn't say anything about being, being crucified, although 
Praise God for the brave martyrs who have subjected themselves even unto death in faithfulness to the Lord. But persecution is in these days is more likely to come to you when people hate you, when they dislike you so much that they get emotionally engaged in it and start hatching malicious plots against you. That's hatred. Or when they exclude you, when you ought to have gotten a promotion, but you never got the promotion. Uh, when, when the group that you are willing to be friends with no longer wants to be friends with you because you have turned into a Jesus freak. That's persecution. When they start saying wrong things about you, insulting you, and rejecting your name as evil, all of that is persecution. And the Bible gives us instruction on how to behave in those circumstances. Be like Jesus. When he was reviled, he did, did not revile again. If people say bad things about you, Make sure that they are false things, unless they're accusing you of being a holy, godly person, and then make sure that is true. But as much as we would like to avoid conflict, conflict is certain to come. Isaac Watts wrote a hymn that asks the question, am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb, and shall I fear to own his cause Or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowering beds of ease when others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace? To help me home to God? Sure, I must fight if I would win. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll, I can't remember how it ends. I'll I'll fight the fight. I'll stay the course encouraged by thy word. It's not exactly the way that it ends, but that's the gist of it. Lord, give me courage when it's time for me to enter into conflict. To do so bravely and to do so graciously. In preparing for this sermon, I was confronted with a realization that I don't think I've ever had before. And that is that virtually everything that we know about Jesus is knowledge that grows out of conflict that he was embroiled in. So I'm preaching through the life and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, I, I don't exactly know, but I think we're about halfway through the three and a half years, about halfway through. And already we have had conflict at his birth. Herod wanted to kill him, and so Jesus fled to Egypt. Jesus and his family fled to Egypt. Uh, even, even at age 12, when he's uh, discussing things with the experts in the law at the temple, there's conflict with his family. I just hope that Jesus enjoyed 30 years of mostly peace because I know that he was a peace-loving man because when he entered into the ministry, then the fire and the sparks began to fly. And I don't think that he had many days 
when there was not conflict. Although, as I've already told you, you can read all four Gospels in about 10 hours. And if you were to layer the things that are duplicated in the synoptic Gospels, I would say that you could probably read the entire life of Christ as presented in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in less than five hours. So those years, I mean those, those five hours, are a summary of what he said and did during about three and a half years. Well, you've been up for five hours today. You know, five hours is, is nothing. So there are many, many days, I hope, that when Jesus had, had peaceful, quiet conversations with his disciples, that not everything was a conflict. But there's no doubt about it. Most of what we know about Jesus springs out of conflict. So when Jesus begins his, his ministry, then he goes to his hometown And he preaches on the doctrine of election. And they get so angry at him that they take him to the cliff on which the hill was built in order to throw him over. A couple of weeks ago, we read how that there were four men who let their friend down through the roof so Jesus could heal him. And Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Big conflict. Who is this man who forgives sins? Who can forgive sins but God alone? He has already been criticized because he fraternized with sinners and tax collectors. Last week we saw how that he was criticized because he never uh, taught his disciples to fast while he was with them. And just, I'm mentioning just, that's what, three or four things, four or five things that I've mentioned. Almost everything that we learn about Jesus comes out of conflict. About the only uninterrupted teaching that I can think of that was free from conflict are John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17, but all of that was spoken with the cross in view. He was going to be crucified the next day. And so even then, what he says is under the pressure of people hate me. People are going to crucify me. And... uh, so I, I, that, that gives me a context for fresh appreciation to Jesus. Thank you for putting up with all the silly nonsense that you had to put up with throughout your life. And uh, when I know that you would have preferred a life of peace. But Jesus knew that there was no way for that to happen. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I've come to bring a sword. And because of my teaching, there's going to be division in the most intimate relationships on earth. Parents against their children, children against their parents, and so on. is going to come about because when someone embraces the teaching of Jesus, he becomes a new person. He becomes a new creation. And it is inevitable that in that context, that persecution will come. Well, I'm tempted to just turn this into a sermon on persecution, and and I could do it because I just taught the Chinese people yesterday on uh, resting in the sovereignty of God when persecution comes. So it's fresh on my mind. But what we have in front of us today is very important. But I thought it important to show you uh, that Jesus, much of, almost all of what we know about Jesus from the Gospels arises out of a context of conflict. 
Now let's look at what it says here in John chapter 5. And we see the beginning of the deadly conflict. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We don't know what feast this was, and it, and it doesn't really matter. So he goes up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, near, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. Uh, I'm just going to make some comments as I go through and then preach the sermon after that. So because John uses the present tense, it's thought that John wrote his gospel before A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. He says, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which has five covered colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, if you have an ESV or some other modern translation, then you have a little footnote there. And uh, so I've got to get my glasses on so I can read the footnote, but I'm going to read the footnote. It says, what, what comes next in some manuscripts is, for an angel, or some manuscripts insert that people were there waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So if you have a King James version of the Bible or a New King James, then you will have that verse in, in, your, in your Bible. And if you've got an ESV or a NASB or other modern translation, it's probably included in a footnote. Now, is, of course, the question is, was this in the original manuscript that John wrote? And uh, in this case, it, it doesn't really matter. So this is a decision that you know, people who espouse the King James Version only will say, well, your modern translations leave that out. But we can, those of us who espouse modern translations can say, yeah, but your Bible has things inserted in it that were not in the original manuscripts. This is a fuss for another time. I'm just saying that right now, something was going on at the pool of Bethesda. And it was something miraculous. And it doesn't depend upon this controversial uh, footnote to see that something was going on. I'll show you in just a minute. Now let's go back to what we have in verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now just kind of let that sink in. 38 years, man, that's a long time ago. And uh, 38 years he's been an invalid. I don't know if he was brought to this pool every day. It's possible that the stirring of the waters took place only at specified times. And then these five covered colonnades would be filled with this pitiful crowd. Just kind of get it in your head. What What a place of disappointment and hope this was. I mean, let's just suppose that for 38 years, people had been carrying this man so that he might get healed. Because when the waters were stirred, whoever, whoever gets in gets healed of whatever disease that he has. And then think of just how disappointed. Oh, the waters are stirred. And suddenly there's a scuffling and a scratching and, and people are making their way towards the water and then the disappointment that everyone felt when they heard a splash, when somebody got there first. 
and then back into the dreary despair of, well, maybe next time, maybe next year. I can also see a, a little bit of a little bit of cruelty here. This guy's been maybe for thirty eight years he's been there. Maybe everybody else should have said, Hey, you know he's been here for thirty eight years. Let's let's make sure he gets in. Let's all get a committee and the next time the waters are stirred, let's push him in first. But uh, that's just not the way people work. Sick or well, that's not the way people work. So I can't be too too hard on the people who were there. So verse 6 says, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. See, that's what I'm telling you. There was something miraculous going on. Otherwise, this man wouldn't be there and he wouldn't have said this. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Let me just say that uh, some of you are going to be very curious about what does the New Testament teach about the Sabbath. And uh, if God preserves my life and your life, I plan to preach on that in the near future. On Wednesday nights, we're beginning to go through the Ten Commandments, and so it shouldn't be very long until we get to the Fourth Commandment, and there will be some extensive teaching on that. So I don't plan to talk about much about the Sabbath today, uh, although it was the, the trigger that uh, pulled the gunshot that we read about here in this chapter. And uh, so you'll just have to put your curiosity on hold for a while for future instruction about the Sabbath. But I don't believe that Jesus is telling him to do anything that, that was sinful. Arise, take up your bed, and walk. But the religious leaders of that day had very particular rules, and he was breaking one of their rules, and so they rebuke him for it. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. This is one of those verses of Scripture that indicates to us that there was nothing remarkable about Jesus' physical appearance. He never had a halo around his head. If he, if he was an unusually handsome man, that's the sort of thing that almost anyone would have noticed. And so there probably was nothing remarkable about Jesus' physical appearance. This guy didn't know who he was. Verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, I'm going to make a deal out of this in a few minutes. Uh, In Greek, it's possible to say, you're doing something that is wrong and you need to stop it. And that's the way that this is 
phrased. Stop sinning. Sin no more, it says in the ESV. In the NIV, it says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Uh, Something worse than being an invalid for 38 years? You know, there are some foolish people who say hell is on earth. Well, if hell is on earth, being an invalid, lying on a stinking mat, begging for a living for 38 years is pretty close to hell on earth if it were on earth. But Jesus says, oh, that ain't nothing compared to what is going to come if you don't stop sinning. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And then what do we make of this in verse 15? The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Our immediate reaction is, why the little snitch? Jesus has been so nice to him, and now he's going off and getting Jesus into trouble. I don't think we necessarily need to think that he was a a nasty little snitch. Uh, Instead, he may be just the common man. Hey, the religious leaders asked me who was it. I didn't know. Now I know. I'm going to go tell them. He may not have been trying to stir up trouble for Jesus at all, but he did. And verse 16 says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Now what happens here is that Jesus is being reprimanded for letting off firecrackers in the park. And Jesus, in response, throws in a hand grenade. And then it is on. Look at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That prepares us for what, with the Lord's blessing, I'll preach about next week. How Jesus was making himself equal with God here. But now, let's go back. I've already told you that much of the information that we have about Jesus arises out of a context of conflict. Now let's look at two or three things that specifically arrest our attention from this text. And one thing is, there is a seemingly impertinent question followed by an evasive answer. Now impertinent is not a word that we use that much. I... I, I thought about using a different word. A seemingly stupid question. But I thought that was kind of disrespectful. Impertinent is, it's not to the point. It's it's useless. It's it's silly. And the, the seemingly impertinent question is when Jesus asks the man, do you want to get well? And, uh, Young people might be tempted to say, well, the appropriate response to that question would be, duh, (laughs) of course I want to get well. Uh, So is this, in fact, an impertinent question? I think that there is something in the text that clues us in that, no, it's a very relevant question. I told you I was going to make a deal of something in a few minutes. Let me show it to you again. It's back there in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. 
Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What do you gather from that? I gather that the infirmity from which he was suffering was connected to a sin concerning which he was persistently guilty. And Jesus is pointing this out. Your infirmity was not just a a willy-nilly thing. Your infirmity was not just so that the glory of God might be displayed in you. Your infirmity was connected to something that you were doing that was wrong. Now, you stop doing that or something worse is going to happen to you, something worse than being sick. I'd be curious to know if, uh, of course, I don't want you to answer right now. You can tell me later. Have you ever been sick with a sickness that you were fairly confident was the result of a sin that you had committed? Oh, I suppose some of the obvious answers would be drunkenness, drug addiction, sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, I I do think that sometimes people are sick. I think the Bible teaches it, teaches it here and in other places. Sometimes sickness is the result of sin, and it's not always a natural connection. So the sins that I just mentioned are natural connections. You, you, have, you have intimate relations with someone who has a STD, you get an STD. That's a natural consequence. I think, I think that there's an instance of this in my life. Before I was converted, I would occasionally see pornography and uh, would would look at it with with great curiosity and for the purpose of uh, uh, of lust. So, within a few days, I would get terrible stomach cramps. I mean, the sort of thing that would have me writhing on the floor in agony for eight or ten hours. And after it happened... More than once, I thought, this is related to my sin. God is punishing me because I'm looking at dirty pictures. I cannot confirm that I was right in that, but I'll tell you what it did. It made me stop looking at dirty pictures because it was not worth the price that I felt like I was having to pay. So, I don't know, maybe some of you could, uh, could share a story like that with me on I think I was sick, and I think it was for this reason. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Bible says that because people are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, some of them are sick, and some of them have even died. That's one reason why when we take the Lord's Supper, I tell people, don't take this if you're a Christian. It's not going to help you become a Christian, and it may even hurt you. I'm thinking of what it says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in this case... I think that the sin, the sickness that the man was suffering was connected to a sin that he was knowingly, deliberately, persistently engaging in. And so it's not an impertinent question when Jesus says to him, do you want to get well? Because if you want to get well, you know you're going to have to leave behind that sin. Probably all of us know someone who has had gastric bypass surgery. I I don't know of anyone in this congregation who has. uh, But we have heard the story 
he or she got gastric bypass surgery, and the doctor warned them, after you get this, you cannot continue to eat the way you have been eating. You've been eating too much. And now you have, you have something that's going to help you to eat less. You've got to eat less or something worse is going to happen to you. And then we also have heard those stories of people who got gastric bypass surgery and then ate themselves to death because they didn't stop eating so much. Well, that's an analogy for what Jesus is telling this man. I I can make you well, but your sickness is connected to this sin that you have been cherishing. I don't know if uh, any of you have ever read C.S. Lewis's marvelous little book called The Great Divorce. In that book, he, he, just, he says that there is a, a bus that goes down to hell and essentially says, anyone who wants to go to heaven, get on the bus. And so there's a busload of people who get on the bus. They go to the environs around heaven. And then every single one of those people has an opportunity to go to heaven if he or she will only leave behind the sin that characterized their life and sent them to hell. So, for example, there is a, uh, a woman who is just constantly wanting to improve her husband and just nagging him to death. He, much to her surprise, is in heaven. And he comes out to greet her, and he lovingly wants her to come into heaven, but she will not do it unless she can recommence the husband improvement project that she's been working on all of those years. He tries to explain to her, that's not the way that it is here. And she says, well, if I, can't, if I can't have that kind of a relationship with you, I'll just go back to hell. And so that happens with every single person on the bus except one. And uh, I thought about reading this to you, but it's about five pages, and that would really try your patience. But I, I hope that, uh, I hope that my, my little introduction will, will prompt many of you to read. If you young people who need to do a book report... It's only about 100 pages, yes, and, uh, and a very interesting, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. But the one man who does get to go to heaven is a man who has a little red lizard on his shoulder. And uh, the people who come off the bus are greeted by either saints who have been in heaven or like angels, heavenly beings, who are going to put them through the, the test of giving up their sin. So this man with the little lizard on his shoulder is met by an angel, a shining one. And the little lizard is whispering in his ear. And uh, the man says, oh, you know, I suppose I need to go on, get back on the bus and just go back to where I was because after all, uh, I, I can't be here with him on my shoulder And the shining one says, you're right, I'll kill him. Do you want me to get rid of him? Oh, I I don't know that it requires all that much. I mean, if you could just maybe get him to be quiet. I I mean, he says that he'll be quiet. And uh, so so there's three or four pages of this dialogue between the angel and this man who's got the red lizard on his shoulder. And finally, the, the angel says to him, I can kill it but you must give me your permission. And the man says, well, what if, what if it kills me too? And he says, well, what if it does? And the man says, you're right. 
you, you, you are right. Go ahead. You can kill it. And so he kills the little red lizard. Now, the red lizard represents lust. Here's a man who's, whose whole life, he's got this little red lizard of lust that is whispering in his ear. And it's taken him to hell. But he can go to heaven if he will just let the angel kill the lust. And he's so reluctant for it to happen. Spend the rest of my life without these fantasies. Spend the rest of my life without visiting these websites and looking at these pictures. From now on, no more. You're going to kill it? Yes. And that's the teaching here. That's why this is not an impertinent question. Jesus is saying, do you want to be well? Because your physical wellness is connected to your moral sickness. And if I make you well, you need to stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. So that's the seemingly impertinent question and why it's not impertinent. And then there is this evasive answer. Jesus asks him point blank, do you want to get well? And the man ought to have said, yes, sir, I sure do. But instead, he gives an evasive answer. He says, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. If there's any other conversation between them, it's not recorded. The next thing that we see is the miracle. Jesus heals him. Jesus says to him, rise, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Get up. And when Jesus spoke the get up to him, he had the power to get up. Take up your bed. That is, do not make provision to get back in this place. And walk. Take responsibility for yourself. You see in his answer, he had kind of pushed responsibility off of him. I have no one to help me into the pool. It's somebody else's fault that I'm not well. And one of the steps that the Lord takes us through when he heals us spiritually is that we stop saying it's somebody else's fault. And Jesus says to you, do you want to be well? Do you want to be well spiritually? Oh, well, you know, I would like to be well spiritually, but you just don't know what my childhood was like. Oh, I would like to be well spiritually, but you know how the church is so full of hypocrites. Yeah, I, was, I was hurt badly by the church when I was 12 years old. This is why I'm not well. I'm not well for this reason and that reason. But Jesus says, do you want to be well? And if you want to be well, then say, yes, sir, I do. Whatever the cost, I want to be well. And Jesus heals him. And at once he was healed, he got up, took his bed, and he walked. And then the text for today concludes with what I'm calling the crossing of the Rubicon. Now, <clears throat> this, is a, uh, this point is named, it's a, it's a common figure of speech, but you may not know what it is, especially you poor ignorant children who have gone to public school. <clears throat> so, back in the century before Jesus was born, Julius Caesar was a very powerful man in Rome. But the Senate told him, You've got to give up your power and tell your army to go home. He was kind of hanging around in France. And at the north of Italy, which is where Rome is, there's a river called the Rubicon. 
And Julius Julius Caesar decides, I'm not going to give up my power. I'm not going to tell my army to go home. Instead, I'm going to go to Rome, and I'm going to conquer Rome with my army. And when he crossed that river, the die was cast. In fact, it said that before he crossed the Rubicon, he said in Latin, the die is cast. But he crosses the Rubicon, and then there's no turning back. There's going to be conflict. He has entered, he has entered Italy as an enemy to the Republic of Rome. And, and he is, he's successful and becomes Julius Caesar. So crossing the Rubicon has since become a figure of speech to say, up to the shores, up to the banks of the Rubicon, you can make a decision to retreat. You can make a decision to turn back. But once you cross the Rubicon, then you're in for the battle. And so that's why I've called this final point, crossing the Rubicon. Because Jesus, well, like I said, they're accusing him of letting off firecrackers in the park, and he throws a hand grenade. They were mad at him because he was breaking the Sabbath. He was doing on the Sabbath day what they said was not permissible. And then Jesus says, I'm doing what my father has been doing. And then you can just hear the, the gasp as they, as they said, did you hear what he said? He called God his own father. Who does he think he is? Does he think that he's equal with God? And so they began murmuring about, we've got to kill this guy. For this reason, they were persecuting. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, I will probably next week repeat what I'm getting ready to say. But so my conclusion will probably be part of my introduction next week. If they had misunderstood Jesus, Jesus had every obligation at this point to say, hold on, boys. I know you don't like my teaching. I know you don't like some of the things that I'm doing on the Sabbath day, but I am not making myself equal with God. We at least agree that that would be blasphemy. (laughs) So we've got that in common. Uh, I am not the Son of God. But that is not what Jesus did. Instead, he enters into what we have in the rest of John chapter 5, where he says, you're right. I am calling God my own father, and I am making myself equal with God. This is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It establishes so much that is foundational to our faith. The Savior that we have was a mighty good teacher, and he was an awfully brave man. And he was so brave that he was willing to die for what he believed in. And all of that is worthy of admiration. But here is a thousand steps further. That man who died on the cross was the God-man. And that makes his death on the cross a whole lot more than a display of courage. It makes his death on the cross something that could be used for, oh my, what could it be used for? Why, why could anybody who trusted in a man like that could be saved from his sin? How about, how about two people? Why, yes, two people. How about two billion people? Yes. 
In fact, there is a number that no one can even count who look to Jesus Christ. And because He is the God-man, what He did on the cross is able to cover all of our sins. He was God's appointed sacrifice for sinners. Here's a question I have for you. Do you want to be made well? Stop making up excuses. Just answer the question. Do you want to be made well spiritually? Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made right with God today? Then repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ and you will be healed.